Good morning. Slightly better than what y'all did with Aaron. But I know it's Memorial Day weekend. I know we're a little rusty. Summer has begun, and that means lots of different things. Uh, But we're glad you're here. My name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here. And this week, we are wrapping up a sermon series that we've been covering for the month of May. We've been looking at this idea of how to live a better story because our thought was that we all live by stories. We all create stories in our life. We all kind of predict where we're going to head. And those of us who are lucky, we end up getting to live that story. Some of us, the story comes to us through tragedy or loss or some other detour we didn't expect. But we all are living a story whether we know it or not. But here's the catch, is that most of us, at some point in our life, will get to live the story that we wanted, but it won't end up being the one that really meant the most in our life. In other words, we'll end up finding these stories like, I want to be partner in this law firm, or I want to marry this person and have kids, or I want to raise really good kids. Like, we'll, we'll find these stories that mean something, but we'll get to the end of our life and we'll still be asking, Was our life meaningful? Did it matter? And so we've been using a framework that actually psychology has given us and then media picked up called the hero's journey to think about how we can live a better story and what does it have to teach us. And this is the hero's journey, a version of it. It was created by Carl Jung and then kind of adapted by Joseph Campbell, and then it kind of turned into this. And by far, this is the most compelling narrative structure out there. It's the story of a character, a character who is comfortable in his own life but senses some type of problem and then gets called out into the unknown. We call that the call to adventure. He gets pulled out of his normal life, usually to solve a problem. And he feels compelled to solve that problem, so he starts solving that problem, but he needs help. And so he finds a guide, a guide that knows the answer about how to solve this problem, and the guide gives him a plan. And then the hero takes on that plan and has a choice of to act or not to act. And that's where we are this week, talking about that call to action. You see, this framework defines every major movie, I would say most major movies in the last 20 years. Lion King, Star Wars, Marvel, Frozen, all of them, all of them follow this hero network because something is so compelling about this narrative structure. But it makes sense to me that it does, that it is compelling, because this story mimics another story. Actually, it mimics our story. It mimics the story that our entire faith is based on. It mimics the story of when God came to earth, and this is what we talked about in that second week, that Jesus' story follows the hero's journey. See, Jesus was born was called out into ministry to start preaching the gospel, repent, the kingdom is near. He has the guide of God's abiding presence. He learns of the plan, and he sacrifices himself in that ultimate call to action. And it could have ended badly, but alas, there was success that he was resurrected. 
And sometimes we look at this story and we think, great, that is an awesome story for Luke and Bilbo and all those other people. But it is Jesus even, but it is not a story for me. The hero's journey is a fascinating tale, but it's, it's not for me who lives here in Dallas in 2022. But we talked about how the Christian life is Jesus's life. The Christian life is the call to live Jesus' life in our time and in our place. So a couple weeks ago, we walked over around this structure talking about what this looked like for us. That call to adventure, it's the call to pattern your life after Jesus's where you are and with who you are. You mimic Jesus's life wherever your situation is. In 75229 in Dallas with three kids, whatever that looks like, you are called to mimic Jesus's life. Then we need a guide. And we talked about how the guide was the Holy Spirit. We talked about how to discern where the Holy Spirit is calling you and how to make sure that that discernment was faithful and according to Jesus' word. And then last week we talked about the plan. And this was a little bit of a plot twist that we threw in there. Because it turns out the way that we define the plan was that the plan is in movies and in our life is not about what you do necessarily. And that's tricky because we're really focused on our decisions in our lives. It's actually about who you become. In the most important movies, there is that final action that makes sense, but usually what occurs in those movies is some type of heart change, some type of internal transformation that leads them to the call to action and then to success. So the plan we decided is not necessarily about what you do, about who you become. And for us, for us, that question then is, well, how do I become more like Jesus? How do I, when grow kids, we say that your heart becomes more like Jesus. How do we make our hearts become more like Jesus? Well, to answer this question, I, I actually think it's helpful to turn back to movies, to look at those moments right before that call to action. So we're going to go back to this little diagram here and kind of talk through what that looks like in these compelling stories. So what we're trying to figure out is how do all of these heroes, Harry Potter, Luke Skywalker, those are the most common, Bilbo Baggins, how do they get from the plan to the call to action? I want you to think about your favorite movie right now, maybe a classic, one that's been told over and over again. And I want you to move in your mind towards the end of the movie, what we might call the climax. Usually there's a scene, a scene where something changes in that main character, a scene where something is realized and there's a shift that happens. And what's interesting about movies is that it's never an inner dialogue. You can't see inside their head usually. And so it's usually just uh, personified by an action. But something changed. So let me tell you mine. My favorite scene, and this, I know y'all, this won't apply to most of you, but just roll with me. It's my favorite. If y'all know Harry Potter, y'all know I'm a little bit of a nerd about this. And in the seventh book in Harry Potter, there is a moment, and I'm not going to give you the whole backstory, but there's a moment 
where good guy needs to defeat bad guy. In order to defeat the bad guy, he needs to sacrifice himself, blah, 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 blah. Harry Potter sits in Dumbledore's office and realizes that he has to go and sacrifice himself. And he's lying on the floor, and in the book, there's all this imagery about his heart pounding and how he's scared of dying, but how he realizes that that is what is next. And then he gets up off the office floor, and he closes the door behind him. And the book says that he just walks with eyes straight forward towards the forest, still trembling, but knowing what he needs to do. That moment is the same moment as when Bilbo Baggins goes into the Battle of the Five Armies or Luke Skywalker starts to take up that duel with Darth Vader. It's that moment when they realize that they have to put themselves in danger. They have to risk their life, and it is worth it. They have to put their life in danger, and it is worth it. It is some shift in their thinking where the survival of their self is not their sole reason for existence. Let me say that again. Their survival of their self is no longer the most important thing. There is something greater. That transformation in movies and characters, it's linked to some ancient idea, some ancient wisdom that has always been out there. And one that I would argue that most major religions talk about, not just Christianity, But Jesus talks about this specifically in Matthew when he's talking to his disciples. So we're going to turn into Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 16. And this very short verse, and it's part of a longer conversation. We're going to look at this, and this is probably one you've heard before if you've been around in the church very often. But what Jesus says to them is like, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Can you imagine being the disciples hearing that? You're sitting there and you're like, oh, I'm sorry. I did not sign up for this. I did not sign up to lose my life. Because instinctively, what we think of when we hear this is some type of physical death. I mean, that's what, that's what movies talk about, right? It's not that they're risking themselves spiritually. It's that they're usually risking themselves physically. It's a metaphor, you see. Like, physical death is supposed to represent something else. Because what I think Jesus is talking about here, and maybe what the disciples, they needed more clarification, and Jesus goes on to clarify it later, is that that call to action, that shift, that inner transformation, for us, it's not actually a physical death. Most of us will not be in that situation in our lives. Thank goodness. It's actually a spiritual death. It's some type of inner transformation that happens to us. That is what Jesus is talking about when he says, you have to lose your life. It is not negotiable. You have to pass through an inner transformation in order to follow me. If Any wish to come after me, if any wish to follow me, then is not optional. You must lose your life. And this isn't a crazy idea. Like I said, almost every world religion that I could think of, major world religion, has this concept in different ways. They all speak about some death before physical death. Islam and Judaism, they frame it as a submission to God's will, 
Buddhism talks about some acknowledgement of nothingness. That's how they frame it in English. Nothingness as some death that you must pass through. Hinduism is similar. They use the word surrender. Surrender to God is some type of death that you must pass through. And each and every one of them says that you have to pass through this in order to get to what Jesus calls gaining life. Other people call it nirvana or heaven. They pass through something else in order to get that life that you actually wanted. In other words, if you want the most compelling story, you have to pass through that same task that Harry Potter and Bilbo Baggins and Luke Skywalker do, but in a distinctly Christian way. So what we're going to do here is I'm going to answer the question, well, great, how do we do that? How do we pass through that death? We're going to do a little primer on intro to Christian spirituality, so will you bear with me? Because here's the thing. There's a lot of different ways to think about this, and I've read a lot of different things to talk about, well, what is this actual death that we pass through? And the best words, the best metaphors that I've landed on have been kind of stolen from psychology and then taken into Christian spirituality, and so that's what we're going to look at here. And some of you, if you've looked at the Enneagram, know these words. So there is, in Christian spirituality, an idea that there are two selves. Again, this is from psychology. It's not foreign, right? There is an idea that there is something in us that we can call our true self. And our true self, as Christians, is defined like this. It is the part of you that is rooted in your identity in God. And God alone. That that identity is your true self. You might think of it as the part that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. We believe that the Holy Spirit dwells in you if you believe in Jesus. And so that part, that is your true identity. It's a part that's in constant communion with God. It's the part that mirrors Christ. You've read all those Bible verses about your identity being in Christ. Well, Christ is fully human and fully divine. We take on that identity and it lives in us. That is your true self. Then we have this other part of us, and I don't love false self because it implies it's negative, but it's not actually negative. It's useful for a while, especially in our first half of life. It's super useful. Richard Rohr calls it a container. It's like in our teens and 20s and 30s, we have to kind of build ourselves an identity. So we wake up in our adolescence and we start kind of like picking identities. Well, I'm going to be someone who's really into country this year, and I'm going to take on that identity, and I'm going to put it in this box, and through adolescence, we're kind of cycling through those identities, trying to fit into what makes sense and into our lives, and then in our 20s and 30s, we start to take on the more significant identities, the ones we think are significant, and we choose a job. We say, oh, I'm going to put the lawyer in my container. I'm a lawyer, and then we take even more significant ones. I'm, I'm a mom or I'm a dad, or I'm a friend, or I'm a sister-in-law now. And we put them all together in this, this little thing that helps us make sense of ourselves. All those identities put together help us make sense of who we are. And psychology sometimes calls this the ego or the persona. It's the way that we present ourselves to the world. What clothes we wear, how we decide where we're going to live, where we're going to send our kids to school. All of these identities make sense. But here's the thing about the false self. Here's where the dying happens. The false self 
all of those identities, they're meant to die. You, you're not going to be the version of the mother that you thought you were going to be forever. You're not going to be a lawyer forever. This is why so many of us, when empty nesting happens, when we lose our job or we retire, we start to have a crisis, right? Because we can't imagine ourselves without that container. But here's what Christian spirituality says. It says, y'all, and I imagine it in that voice. Y'all, this container isn't you. It's never been you. You, you are the thing underneath the container. You are you because God made you. You are you because the Holy Spirit lives in you. You are you because you are loved by God. That is you. And so most of us spend our lives trying to let the container fall away trying to find a way into that true self. If we're wise, some of us just shuffle containers our entire life. But for those of us who are on the path of life, on the path of wisdom, we start to realize that we're going to need to let some of this go in order to live the most meaningful life that we can. And this is an interesting concept and a hard one kind of to wrap our heads around because admittedly, it's really just abstract. It's really abstract. But it's also the only way to move forward into the call of action. Otherwise, you stay here in the plan, knowing that you're supposed to become like Jesus, but doing nothing about it. And so these words, these concepts are helpful in the moments of crisis when our container falls away or shakes a little bit and we don't know what to do we remind ourselves that that actually isn't who we are called to be. And I thought long and hard about if I could give you some practical steps about how to let those false selves fall away, because that's really what it was. We use the word dying, but I think Jesus' word is better. We lose them. Like, that's, it's a passive kind of thing. It's not active. So you lose these pieces of yourself. But here's the thing. I don't know that there is a roadmap. And that's terrifying. And that's why most of us hang out in the plan. We don't move forward. Because the pathway that we're given, honestly, is pretty boring. I mean, I can give you the road answers, right? Prayer, study, service, community, giving. They're not remarkable answers. You already know them. But it's also the only task that matters. And so instead of giving you a plan today, which kills me a little bit inside because you know I like practical sermons, but we're just going to move on from that, is that I'm going to give you an image. I'm going to give you an image. Because a few weeks ago, my spiritual director told me to read a book, a book I think it was published in the 60s or 70s. It's an allegory, which is not in my genre to read. It's like Pilgrim's Progress, kind of, you know? And it's called uh, Hind's Feet and High Places. And it's this old allegory, and I hadn't read it before. 
And in it, the main character, she's named Much Afraid, right? And her whole journey is with the shepherd, i.e. Jesus, who has to take her into this high place. And one of the images that comes up 14 times, I think, in the story is this image of an altar. She's consistently kneeling on the ground and picking up a memorial stone and then laying, sometimes literally, her heart on the altar over and over and over again. Like All through the story, she has to do it again and again and again. And she says, every time I put my heart on the altar, God, the path afterwards is harder. And Jesus, the shepherd, says, yes. And that's all he says, yes. And recently, I've been thinking about this image over and over and over again. Because the altars don't just happen at one death in our life. They happen over and over and over again. You live those, that hero's journey over and over and over again in your life. And eventually, you will find an altar. This is an altar that's really important to me. It was probably my first like real death, real dying to self in my adult life. It's in an old church. It's from the 300s. It's called St. Peter's Cave. It's a cave in Antioch, Turkey. And uh, it's just a cave. Like it's just a cave carved out of the side of the mountain. And it's where, as far as we can tell, the earliest of Christians gathered. They had to gather in the mountains because they were being persecuted, right? And so they gathered in the mountains. And and when I was 19, I I went on this trip and I went to this cave. And I remember that it wasn't necessarily the cave that spoke to me. It was that altar in the middle that was placed in later, like during the Crusades. And on that altar, it has carved into it Alpha and Omega. The beginning, the end. I'm on the hero's journey, just as much as you are. And every time there comes a place when I start to identify myself or cling to those false identities, that are even good, they're not even bad, they're just there. I'm reminded of this altar. Because what's compelling about it is to remind myself that my life is not about me, that I am about life. I am a part of something bigger that is the beginning and the end. I belong to a bigger story than my own. And that's why that altar matters. That's why I come before it. That's why even when it hurts and even when I know that the other side of it is going to be really hard, I still put my heart on the altar. Some of us are not quite ready for that, and that's okay. But some of us are. Some of us are searching for what matters in this life. Some of us are seeing the world break down around us and we're trying to find another way. And some of us reach out 
to politics or community organizing or something else that matters, and those things are fine and good, but ultimately they are not what matters more. What matters more is you in your true self and becoming your true self more and more every day and living out your hero's journey because that is what Jesus destined you for. Let us pray. God of all good and fruitful things, Lord, you have touched our life in ways that we don't even know, in ways that we don't, don't even sense. Dear Jesus, I pray for us today, for us to see these identities that we cling to and learn to hold them loosely. Learn to know that they are not the end. They are not the alpha and omega. Jesus, teach us that we are something Teach us that we are something and some part of a bigger story. And when we are unsure, let us be faithful enough to trust that you will lead us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Now is the moment in our service where we respond to the word with generosity in the offering. And here's the thing I was thinking about you know those five things that I listed? Study, community, service, giving. I'm going to fit oh, personal devotion. Those things. In my life, the thing that has transformed my heart, not the only thing, but one of them, is that Dan and I tithe. Stephen does too. And we do it, and every month, it's like this little miniature death, right, of looking at those bills and being like, oh, God, how am I going to do this? It has been a discipline for us. And that's part of the reason that we do it here in church. It isn't self-glorification, it, it isn't that. It's because it's an invitation, an invitation to that small death that means something more. So the ushers are gonna come forward, we'll do the offering, and then we will sing the song called I Will Follow. It's our final song. But as you do, I hope that it is a commitment to something greater, to a bigger story that you, whether you acknowledge it or not, are a part of. <laughs>